You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Yo, this is Doc G, and today we have a double header. Coming up first, Gene Chatsky and Louis Barajas talk about their new show on PBS, Opportunity Knox. And after that, I am going to tell a story, a story I've never told before about the true reason, or at least part of the reason, that I left medicine. Legally, I've not been able to talk about this up to this moment. So stay tuned. First opportunity knocks, and then I tell my story. I'm Jean Chatsky. I'm Louis Barajas. And you're listening to the Earn and Invest podcast. I had every opportunity in the world. Every advantage. During childhood, my parents modeled fantastic financial behavior. Although they never sat down and explained it to me, I watched them save 50% of their income, start businesses, buy real estate, and invest in the stock market. I graduated medical school with no debt and did my best as an adult to follow my parents' lead. There was no doubt that I would be successful. No doubt that I would practice sound financial stewardship of my high income. Throughout my life, when opportunity knocked, I had been trained to swing the door open and accept what was coming to me. However, as a financial expert and podcaster, I've witnessed firsthand that for many people, it feels like opportunity never knocks. Or if it does, maybe no one is home to answer. Gene Chatsky is the CEO of HerMoney.com and host of the podcast Her Money with Gene Chatsky. The former financial editor of NBC Today for 25 years and the financial ambassador for AARP, she appears frequently on CNN, MSNBC, and was a recurring guest on The Oprah Winfrey Show. Louis Barajas redefines what it means to be a wealth and business expert. Louis connects with people through their passions, their dreams, and their sometimes challenging situations in life. He is a renowned speaker, author, and wealth and business manager to some of the most iconic Latin artists and executives in the entertainment and sports industry. Premiering this fall on PBS stations, Opportunity Knox will pair six geographically and demographically diverse families with either Jean, Lewis, or Patrice Washington to help them chart a path out of debt and into financial stability, providing digestible and sustainable tips and various resources viewers can utilize. Jean and Lewis, welcome to Earn and Invest. Jean, let's talk about the title of your upcoming PBS show, Opportunity Knox. Are the cards stacked against your average American? Like I said in my intro, I came from a place of abundant opportunities, but not everyone kind of gets that privilege. But I think you are um, 100% right, sadly. Uh, and first of all, thanks so much for having us here. It's it's nice to see you. It's nice to see Lewis, as always. Yeah, it, it is. We definitely don't live on a level playing field. There are there are people for whom opportunity doesn't knock. They have to go out and create their own opportunity. And some people are are just better suited to doing that than others. That said, I think if you put your mind to creating pathways for yourself, we've all seen examples of of people out there who are just so determined to make their own ways in the world to pull themselves up to make a better life for themselves and their families we've watched stories of of you know one first generation family after another and they're you know astonishing much of the time so uh, although i agree with you i i do think that 
we still live in a country that that is full of opportunity if you look for it. Lewis, I want to talk more about how people tap into those opportunities. A quote from the runner of the show, with 60% of Americans living paycheck to paycheck, the topic of financial independence and security couldn't be more relevant right now. Why is this so hard? Why are so many Americans struggling? You know, it's gotten tougher and tougher, right? The wealth gap keeps getting wider. And the problem has been that most people haven't been taught how to be resourceful. What we work with our families in the show, Opportunity Knocks, is we try not to do things for them. We try to show them how they can find opportunities that they can knock on, right? And and so I think that the problem now, not the problem, the opportunity is that if we can, through this show, show people that no matter where they're, they are at, what bad hand of cards they've been dealt with, that there are resources out there available for them. The problem is that when people are struggling or in that survival mode, they're lost and they can't see very, you know past you know a foot in front of them because they're just trying to make it step by step. We're trying to show them that there are opportunities, but they've got to, you know, that there are people out there who are willing to help them and there are organizations that are willing to help them. And we just have to know how to find them. Gene, when I think of this word opportunity, I think of America as the land of opportunities. And of course, that makes me think of the American dream. Here's another quote from you. At a time when the American dream seems out of reach for more and more families, it's imperative that people know it's never too late to take control of their financial future and that the resources to do so are often right in their own community. Talk about the American dream. I mean, does it still feel like it exists today, especially in this post-pandemic world we're in, where it it feels like we're heading into a recession and things are going in the wrong direction? I think it depends on how you define it, right? It may not be the American dream that we grew up with, right? The American dream was always you would do better than your parents. I think for a lot of people, that feels somewhat out of reach because of of the way that the economy is going. But I also, I I think that what Lewis said is is absolutely true, right? Whether your dream is homeownership, whether your dream is starting a business, whether your dream is starting to save for your future so that you can retire at 50. Once you put a finger on what your dream is, sometimes you need some guidance in order to show you the path to get there. We all needed guidance at one time or another. And and we were fortunate enough, many of us, to have mentors and sponsors and other people who are willing to take us by the hand and show us the way. But once you figure out what it is you want, it's a lot easier to chart your course to get there. And the people that we're working with in the show had very specific dreams, very specific goals. And we were able to help them get on a course to make those things possible. We're not doing the work for them, as Lewis said. They they have to do the work. It's it's not sustainable any other way. But I'm extremely excited for what these families are looking forward to. Lewis, I want to jump into some of these stories about these families. But before we do, talk to me about the basic premise of Opportunity Knocks. What's the idea behind the show? Well, the opportunity basically is around uh, helping six families that are going through some level of crisis. It may be a really substantial financial crisis. Um, I had a couple that weren't in a financial crisis, but Money was an obstacle to help them reach their vision of where they wanted to be. And they didn't know how to take their resources and align them to their, to their vision and their values. And so we guided them through there. I had a very complicated case where I had somebody in Texas, uh, in Socorro, Texas, that was in deep, dire straits financially and needed a lot of help. And not only was the help based on just financial help, but it was a lot of mindset shifting, a lot of paradigm shifting around what got them there and how we're going to get them out and then coach them. Like, you know, uh, Gene said, we've got, we have to kind of work a lot on the mindsets. So you're going to see a show that is going to uplift you, see people that are not, everybody's not, you know, struggling financially. Some of them are, uh, but you're going to see people that you're going to recognize almost kind of as yourself. And you're going to get a lot of tips on how to move to the next level uh, in your life. Gene, I want you to also tell us about some of the couples that you helped or families that you helped. But before we do, 
Lewis mentioned mindset, and it brings up kind of an important question. How much of this is a mindset gap versus a knowledge gap? In other words, do people believe they can improve their lives? A hundred, a hundred percent. It's mindset. Uh, I like a hundred and two percent. It's mindset, and it reminds me. So when Lewis and I first met, we we realized we had a a good mutual friend in in David Bach, and I know David Bach because I worked with him in your city of Chicago on a program for Oprah called the Debt Diet that we did well over a decade ago now. And and I will always remember sitting on the stage with Oprah and David and and um and our other coach that right after we shot the first of these programs and we did a, a Q&A with the audience and a woman in a red dress stood up in the audience and started listing the reasons that she mm-hmm. could not get out of debt you know the the many important reasons like the fact that she you know she goes out with her friends and she goes and she has these obligations and and Oprah just looked at her and said you're not ready hmm. you're not you're not ready you have to you have to be ready in order to make a change like this and that's true of anything right you you want to go on a diet you want to start exercising you want to start a new business you want to you want to change the relationship that you have with your money you have to be ready i grew up really poor in a place called boyle heights in los angeles and didn't know it was poor because i had two wonderful parents right <laughs> parents who loved me and and my dad uh my parents got pregnant they got pregnant when they were like my mom 15 years old with me and my dad was a blue collar worker who had come from mexico who probably had a sixth grade education and I left and I made it out of the barrio because I went and got went to UCLA, got an MBA, became a certified financial planner, ended up working with multimillionaires and billionaires. And then my life, I had tragedy in my life and I went back to East LA to help the poor. Because back then in 1990, there wasn't a lot of financial literacy for Latinos. And then so I started writing. But then I realized when I got back that I couldn't help people who weren't ready to be helped. And so I... I decided that I pivoted and I started writing books on limiting cultural beliefs, the mindset about money. And so I thought that it was a, it, it was my role to write books to help shift the mindset for people in my community to be able to read books like Gene Chatsky's books or Dave Ramsey's books or David Bach's books or whomever, Susie Orman's books. But they wouldn't there were no bookstores in that community. I had to go back and realize that no amount of financial literacy will help certain people in poverty. You've got to change their mindset first so they're prepared for, for, for that kind of information and they can execute on that kind of information. Jean, let's pivot from mindset to emotions. Were there a lot of tears? Oh my gosh. <laughs> and and not just from the families, I think from us as well. There were there were um there were a lot of there was you know, money's emotional. Right. It's emotional because we're talking about our dreams for what we want in life and our failures in many cases in achieving those dreams for the people that we uh, feel like we're responsible for, the ones that we want to take care of. I mean, that's that's a lot right there. And and so, of course, it's it's emotional. Um, it's also emotion. I think that some of the tears that I saw with my families were the emotions of frustration, the emotions of feeling like there's a knowledge gap. Like you were not taught to do these things in school. Nobody nobody took you by the hand and taught you basic money management skills. And so it's no surprise that that we've got a lot of of people who just don't understand the basics of compound interest and debt and how credit cards work and 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 the the level of frustration at just realizing that you're banging your head against the wall that in and of itself can be um tear inducing and it it it's when you see the light come on and people figure it out and they see what Lewis and I and Patrice did, we just opened some doors for people and showed them resources, showed them roads, showed them pathways, showed them that they actually had the ability to do these things. You know, then the, then those were happy tears. You're going to see that the show is not about greed. 
it's not about how to take somebody from not having anything to then all of a sudden, you know, having this million dollar house or having this really expensive car, whatever. It really is a show about creating financial dignity. And for example, for the person that I was helping, it wasn't about moving to another neighborhood. It was about fixing her home so she could have running water. Believe it or not, Doc, she didn't have any running Mm -hmm. water with with kids there. Um, It was not about um, buying a brand new car. It was about fixing her car so it wouldn't just in the middle of the road stop somewhere and, and, you know, leave her where it could be dangerous. It was not about, you know, uh, being able to have the best doctors. It was about being able to afford health insurance, health care insurance. So, you know, it's it's a lot about financial dignity. The, the, the gentleman that I worked with was an LA Unified School District teacher who wanted something better for himself and he saw a different vision, but it was not about making more money. It was about having enough money to be able to pivot and transition so he can live a life filled with purpose and meaning, something that he wanted to do, right? Something very similar to your story is that, right, the thing is that you didn't do what you're doing right now for for money. Obviously, we want to do well and do good at the same time, but you did it because there's purpose and meaning to your life. And and I think that for for all of the coaches here as well, I think we kind of have that same attitude. And so, again, we were really blessed to to be on the show and be able to work with some people and help them out. And it just wasn't about us. There's a huge team of people supporting these yes. families on the show. Yes. And, and, and let me just say that, that that's a point that really should not go um, unnoted. I mean, there, there are um, not only the producers who, who pulled this all together, but Part of the mission of this show was really to open the eyes of people in communities across the country about the various resources that actually exist for them in their communities, from their credit unions, from community organizations that are are able to help them out in a pinch. I mean, to, that can help them get jobs, that can help them get reskilled. There, there's a lot. There is a lot there and there's a lot that people don't understand how to access. And so the show actually points people to a tool called the Opportunity Finder, where they can plug in the information of where they are in the country and they can um, locate those resources. And by the way, I also, to be quite honest with you, you know, I've been writing about financial planning. I've been a financial planner forever. And uh, I learned some new resources to help and guide clients in my community that I had didn't know about. You know, I didn't have, I didn't know about CDFIs, you know, community development financial institutions. I didn't, I, you know, I didn't have a clue about them and, and realized that they were really literally in front of me. They were either banks or, or credit unions that were there to help people in need as well. And so I learned throughout this process of available resources. So it, it was a great learning opportunity, I think, for all of us. Opportunity Knox follows six different families through the process. Talk about some of the successes and failures as you came to the end of filming. So I was fortunate enough to work with two different families. One is a a family in Raleigh, North Carolina, that had um, made the difficult decision during the pandemic to move in with her parents. And that had gotten pretty old pretty fast, despite the fact that her parents were nice hosts. But they they were really striving to get out on their own and, and needed to figure out um, how to boost their income in order to do that. There were some tough choices that needed to be made. I, I don't want to say you know, that there were successes and failures, but there were definitely tough choices about being a stay-at-home parent, about, you know, whether it's okay for kids to be in daycare, about how much time to be spent working outside the house, and and about how much, you know, to spend on a house in a very, very tough and tight real estate market. So that was one scenario. I also had the the privilege of working um, with two uh, people who work with the in the Philadelphia public school system. A couple whose daughter is two years old. The two women, and they want to um, expand their family and have another baby, and they're just not sure if they can afford it. You know, when you are a same sex couple, um, having a baby is more expensive than it is if you can just you know do it the old fashioned way. And so we we were working through the the budgetary uh, challenges that have to do with that. But I think they're they're on a road where they can see their way clear to being able to do it sooner than they expected. 
Lewis, talk about some of the tough choices your families had to make on the show. Well, it, you know, I had a couple in LA that again was needed to make a tough choice of whether they um, were going to move out of LA because they couldn't afford a home. And also the opportunity where he needed to go for the vision of where he wanted to his career to go was to move out of also uh, Southern California, maybe to North Carolina or another another state. And it, it wasn't easy for them because the other spouse had a job there that was working there, right? And uh, they were also trying to have a child and money was tight. And then also, you know, you get complacent when you're working, like, for example, LA Unified School District, they have a nice pension plan. Do you just leave it and go? Um, he was just like, I think, a year short of uh, vesting in his in his retirement plan. That's a big decision for a lot of people, believe it or not. You know, do I go after my dream and go after what I want? But I also want to have a child and I also I have to take care of a spouse. And those were really difficult decisions. Uh, I think they made the the best decision. You'll see you'll see it in the show. You'll see it in the show. I'm not going to ruin it here for, for you. <laughs> but, you know, and the other person that I had really had to have a big paradigm shift. She was such a giver. She gave mm -hmm. to everybody, but she did not set proper boundaries for herself, right? And the boundaries that we spoke about have nothing to do with money, but at the end of the day, it's everything to do with money. And she had to set proper boundaries with herself, with her children. And so those were some big opportunities for learning. And Jean didn't throw me under the bus, but when you said uh, where there's a lot, was there a lot of crying in the show? I thought she was going to say, yeah, Lewis was crying like every <laughs> shot. <you know? laughs> well, I mean, I did everything for this, you know, macho guy from East LA to hold it together. But at the end of the day, you're going to see some crying from me, I think. Gene, it seems like throughout we've been talking about personal responsibility, but that always begs that important question. How much of Americans' financial lives will improve with their own personal responsibility versus systemic legislative change? I mean, how much does our system really need to change to help people? I think we need both. I think it's pretty clear that we're in a scenario where we need both. And I, I think, you know, if you just look at at the um at the experience we had with the short trial of the child tax credit and how many children that lifted out of poverty. I mean, it was astonishing. And so, you know, I'm not uh, I'm not a policy maker. I uh, I like it when I see forward thinking legislation coming out of Congress. We've got the Secure 2.0 Act. Hopefully, that will pass within a short period of time and and provide some some boosts for emergency savings, some some additional incentive for employers to help repay student loans, more automatic signups for people into retirement plans. You know, there, there's a lot going on, but but I think more needs to be done. And 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 I also think we need mandatory financial literacy education, not just for high school graduation. We need it. We need it like we need health classes. You know, 46 of the schools of the states in this country have required health education at all grade levels. Money should be the exact same thing. Lewis, did you find with the families that you worked with that the pandemic had changed their thoughtfulness about money or how they were planning for the future? It did. Uh, but the also pandemic made everything worse. I mean, the person that I had, um, she was literally surviving on teaching art classes in her home. And the pandemic hits. And guess what? She didn't see anybody or nobody would go to her class. And all of a sudden, she lost all her uh, income. It, it made all of us, right, look at life a little different. And uh, but it it put a lot of people in dire straits and they had to rethink about how they were going to create income in their lives. I still think that there's going there's some major shifts in our economy and we're going through those shifts right now. And this impending recession that we have is going to make it even a little bit tougher right? getting out of this pandemic. But I think we'll figure it out. We'll figure it out. And at the end, we're all going to be stronger for it. So, Gene, eventually the cameras go away and your families have to go back to their lives. Tell me what you hope they got out of the Opportunity Knocks show and their work with you and what you hope the viewers in general get out of the show. Well, first of all, I'm still talking to them. <laughs> um, and so so that's not that's not a connection that that we're going to sever so quickly. But uh, look, I hope the viewers see themselves in the experiences of these families and 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 see see the progress that they were able to make and and see a way that they can chart their own course forward. I hope that they 
use the tools and 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 like Lewis said, you know, realize that there are organizations like CDFIs and credit unions that are out there to really help them get on their financial feet if they if they will reach out and access them. And Lewis, some of these tools are going to be available to the public as a whole. Again, tell us about Opportunity Finder and how people will be able to access it. Well, they can go through opportunitynox.net um, and they can go and find the Opportunity Finder as well. And in the Opportunity Finder, they'll be able to put down if they're having problems with their small business, small business loans, or you know they got debt problems. So they just go in there and start putting It'll find them organizations, CDFIs in their own community in their own community, if they want to go and walk into a credit union, walk into a bank or get help or get uh, a business coaching, uh, free business coaching, if they want to get something, you know, where they can't afford right now, it'll find it for their area and they're continuously work on it to make it even better. I think that's what we want for everyone who's watching this show for a couple of things to say, hey, I'm not alone. I'm going and I'm struggling right now through some difficult times, but I'm not alone. I, I I can go look for some resources. And at the same time, there's still hope because, you know, we've all been there, right? There are people that are are in survival mode. And just like Patricia was the, the, the lady that I, that I worked with and the family that I worked with, you're going to watch a show. And I'm going to tell you right now, you'll cry watching the situation that she was in. At the end, you see her happy. You see her lighter. Um, you see that it's the struggle's not over. And there's still going to be struggles. It's going to take time. We can't turn everything around. This is not a get rich quick scheme kind of show. This is a show that shows you how to turn your life around, where you can get help and when there's going to be hope. And it takes time to do that. So, yeah, that's that's why, like I said, we, you know, we stay in touch with the families that we work with. Well, Gene and Lewis, I love that message, this idea that there is hope that you are not alone, and the opportunities exist if you just know the resources to tap into them. The show is Opportunity Knocks. It will premiere Thursday, October 27th on the PBS Passport streaming service, which can be accessed with a membership to any local PBS station. Beginning in the winter of 2022, Opportunity Knocks will begin airing on individual PBS stations across the country with schedules set in those local markets. I wanted to end this episode the way and every episode by asking what is up next in your lives. And specifically, if people want to reach out to you and your content, how can they? Lewis, let's start with you. What is up next in your life and how can people reach out to you if they want to know more? Yeah, I, I mean, they can go to lewisbarajas.com. It's L-O-U-I-S-B-A-R-A-J-A-S. Um, I'm writing my sixth book, just finished it. It's called The Go Better Entrepreneur. Not The Go Getter, The Go Better, because at the end of the day, right, the purpose of a business is to give you more life, not to suck the life out of you. And so um, that's what I'm working on next. And I'm working on a lot of other stuff as well. But uh, that's the main stuff that I'm working on. And Gene, what is up next in your life? And if people want to reach out to you, what is the best way for them to do that? Um, people can reach out to me on social media. I'm at Jean Chatsky, as well as at the Her Money website, um, which is just hermoney.com. I am uh, knee deep in launching a financial coaching program called Finance Fix, which is really designed to help people get a grip on these these saving and spending and and budgeting and debt issues that so many of us have trouble with. And and you can find that at hermoney.com as well. Again, the show is Opportunity Knocks, and it will premiere Thursday, October 27th on PBS Passport. This has been the Earn and Invest podcast. On behalf of myself, Doc G, I'd like to thank Louis Barajas and Gene Chatsky. That's a wrap. As promised, first we talked Opportunity Knocks with Gene Chatsky and Louis Barajas. And now I want to tell a story about opportunities lost and gained. I've often spoken both in my book and on this podcast about how I decided to leave medicine. But there was one factor that I purposefully left out. Now, truly... I can talk about that factor, and that's what I'm going to do right now. Today, I'm going to tell you a story that I've never been able to legally tell until now. And it's a story that 
I've been afraid to tell in many ways. It's a story that for me is incredibly vulnerable. Let me start out by saying that I've always had trepidation about leaving medical practices. When I first started practicing, I was in a general internal medicine office, and I worked for a medical group, and I was there for five years, and I took care of a lot of elderly patients who were at very high risk, morbidity, mortality. These were people who were skirting death every day, and they would come into my office and see me, and I'd see them in the hospital. Sometimes I'd see them in the nursing home. These were patients I got to know intimately. The problem was, after five years of working for a medical group, I realized I could do a much better job on my own, that if I owned my own practice, I would make more money and do a better job taking care of patients. And at that time, a friend of mine who was a drug rep actually came into my office and he mentioned a practice about 10 miles away from mine in which was looking for a new partner. This was a chance for me to pretty much not be an employee anymore, but to own my own practice. Needless to say, after much thought, I jumped at the opportunity. Now, the sad part was that because this was 10 miles away from my current practice, I was going to be leaving a lot of my patients behind. Some were willing to get in the car and drive that far, but especially for the elderly, especially for those higher or highest at risk, This wouldn't be an easy trip. So I took the new job and I spent the last few months getting my patients ready for me to leave. But there were two in particular I was worried about. One was an elderly woman who was 75% blind, lived with a caregiver, and she had been tottering on and off in and out of the hospital I feel like we were always managing her on the tip of a pin just to keep her safe and healthy. And the other was an elderly man who used to regale me with stories of his wife and how much he loved her. She passed away 20 years before he did, and he lived in his memories of her. At one point, she actually was a Playboy bunny, which he loved to tell me about. He even showed me a picture once of her in her 20s in the getup. And he lived for the love of this woman who had passed away. He spent his time when he was healthy enough walking. He would literally go out and walk 20 miles. He would go from the suburbs walk all the way to Chicago into the middle of the city and walk back. This is how he spent his time, but eventually his diabetes overcame him. He developed multiple chronic medical problems, and he would hobble into my office every week. Often he got so sick he would need to go to the hospital, but he generally refused, and I would have to get home health care to go take care of him, etc. These were the two patients I was worried most about. And indeed, after I left my practice a few months later, they were both dead. Now, this doesn't mean that I was responsible. I mean, these were people maybe who should have died long ago, and between my constant care and their will to live, they stuck it out longer than anyone would have expected. But I can't say that I didn't have guilt. I can't say that I didn't carry this with me to my new practice. When I got to my new practice, I flourished. I had about 2,000 patients And you know the rest of the story. I eventually became burned out in medicine. In 2014, Jim Daly sent me his book, The White Coat Investor. I learned that I was financially independent, that I could leave medicine. But of course, emotionally, I wasn't ready for it yet. But one of the things that was holding me back, one of my worries is, again, I had built up this community of patients I was taking care of, and many of them were elderly and frail. By the time I got to this point, I was also doing home visits and... A lot of my patients couldn't come to doctor's offices. They couldn't even come to the hospital, nor did they want to. So part of me remembered the trauma of leaving my last practice, of losing some of my favorite patients, and of realizing that there are real-life health consequences. When you are in your 80s and you're frail and you're chronically ill and you have a doctor who's been taking care of you for a few years and knows the ins and outs of your care, when that doctor leaves, that is majorly traumatic. And so I figured that although I was burning out in medicine, maybe I would just stick it out. And then the unexpected happened. Let me explain. 
When I was in my residency, I had a friend who was a fellow resident who was an OBGYN. That means she delivered babies, did gynecologic surgeries. And she was at the end of her residency when a lawsuit was filed against her. She was part of the care of an incredibly complex patient. She wasn't even the decision maker. She wasn't the attending physician. She was one of the helping residents, but she got sued And I remember how traumatic that was for her. I remember the pain and the agony of being part of a lawsuit, which took years to resolve. And I'll never forget her saying, if I am found guilty in this case, I'm done. I'm leaving medicine. This is way too early in my career to go through this type of trauma. Thankfully, She eventually was dropped from the suit, and she practiced OBGYN for years and years and still is and has made a huge impact on her community. So it was a good thing she wasn't found guilty, but I have to admit, I adopted her stance. I kind of said in the back of my mind, if I am ever sued for malpractice, I'm leaving medicine. Now, I know this sounds a little immature, But I had given everything I could to this profession. I had spent my days and my nights, every waking moment studying, trying to become the consummate doctor, even in medical school and residency. I gave it my all. And I just didn't feel like I could manage the shame and fear and sadness that would come from not only being blamed for someone else's death by having an actual lawsuit against me, but also the economic and emotional fear of what that would mean to my career. You see, when you're found guilty of malpractice, it changes everything. It changes your malpractice insurance rates. Every time you apply for a new practice or apply to a new hospital, you get questions about whether you've been involved in a lawsuit It keeps on coming up. It can change the trajectory of your career. But not only that, but there's a lot of emotional baggage. I feel like once you've been sued for malpractice, and certainly once you've had a claim that's gone through and has been ruled against you, you end up questioning everything you do with your patients. Being a doctor is incredibly hard. It's an art as well as a science. Sometimes we have to make really difficult decisions that have no clear scientific answer. To have the baggage in your mind that you might be sued and you better do more than less, it really would make me feel like I wasn't serving my patients any longer. And I had a big fear of the fact that that would make me a worse physician and always wanting to be the consummate physician, always being the one who studied so hard and worked so hard and took such pride in my work. I didn't want to have that bias in my day-to-day practice. So this was something I held with me many years as a practicing doctor, and it really never came up until I got a knock on my door. It was 8 p.m. in 2017. I was watching TV with my wife and kids, and I went to the answer the door, and there was a stranger there who handed me a sheath of papers and said, Jordan Grummet, you've now been served. He handed me a subpoena, and I was being sued for a case, of course, that I didn't remember. Every doctor will tell you this. There are cases we worry about, cases where we have remorse, cases where we think, oh boy, we could have done something better. Those are not the cases you tend to get sued on. The cases you tend to get sued on are the ones that you didn't even consider were a problem, the ones that you thought you did exemplary care. And so when I got the subpoena, I didn't even recognize the case. I had to go back through the records and look it up. And indeed, I have to tell you, from day one, it seemed frivolous. This was a patient I took care of in the nursing home who got a sore on his heel. And I was called and I assessed it immediately at the nursing home. I decided it wasn't infected. I called the wound care doctors in, which happened to be at this point an infectious disease doctor. The infectious disease doctor saw the wound, suggested wound care, did not think it was infected either. A week later, it became infected. The patient ended up having an extremely rare disease called necrotizing fasciitis. It is a very aggressive type of infection. 
from the day the patient showed symptoms to the day we got them in the hospital, which was actually less than a day, it was less than 24 hours, the patient got correct medical care, but they died. And most people who have necrotizing fasciitis die. And this patient was chronically ill with lots of medical problems. Their life expectancy was probably less than a year, even if this hadn't happened. And they were suing me because I didn't consult the right people, which is crazy because I actually consulted an infectious disease doctor who are experts in wounds and infections. And I did this a week before we had any problems. The wound doctor saw the patient. In some ways, I felt like I was covered. On the other hand, this did nothing for the shame and fear and anxiety that this lawsuit caused me. It was filed in 2017, and I had years of fear and pain associated with it. Not only fear that this meant that I was a bad doctor, not only fear that this meant that my career would forever be affected because I had to now answer, especially if they found me guilty, I would have to answer every time I tried to find a new job or apply for new insurance or what have you. But also this idea that they could go after my personal finances. You see, you get malpractice coverage, and for most people, it's $1 million a case or $2 million a year. What the plaintiff's attorneys often do is they threaten that they're going to sue you for more than that $1 million because they know that once the $1 million of the insurance is used up, they can go after your personal assets. So not only was I just worried about this idea of being found guilty like I'd done something wrong, but also they could go after my livelihood. They could go after my money. They could bankrupt me of everything I owned. And that was exceedingly scary. So all of this was in the background in 2018 when I decided to leave medicine. I often wonder if I hadn't been sued, would I have totally left my clinical practice the question is moot because I was sued and it was the straw that broke the camel's back. I decided to leave. And unfortunately, just like in my first practice, there was a woman who I was extremely attached to in her 80s who I was seeing in her home. And she had a series of medical complications. And I remember the last medical complication she had was during travel. And I knew her so well I realized that she suffered major consequences every time she traveled. And I had sat down with her and her husband. And I said, you know, I know you really like travel, but you have to understand every time you go out of town, you end up having an exacerbation of your chronic illnesses. And one of these days, it's going to kill you. And so we talked about it and we talked about what was more important to her and her husband. And eventually she decided that she wasn't going to travel anymore. And she did really well for about a year or two. And of course, then I left the practice. I had a partner of mine cover. He would go see her in her home. The last time he saw her, he checked her out and he said, you know what? I feel like you're looking good. If you want to go ahead and take that trip, go ahead. He had no idea of my previous conversation with her. She went and took the trip and a few days in, she suffered a bleeding stroke. She didn't die right away. They brought her back to Chicago, but she died a few weeks later. And just like in my first practice situation, I can't help but think if I had been there, if I hadn't left my practice, maybe she would have lived longer. So I left medicine in 2018. I started doing only hospice work where I don't actually see patients. I manage hospice teams. But this lawsuit lingered. It lasted for years in 2020 the lawyer decided that they didn't have enough cash to continue the suit and dropped it, but the judge gave them one full year to refile. And I was so excited. I felt like this burden had been lifted off of me. And of course, on the last day of the year, the last day they had to refile, the same lawyer refiled. Even though he said he was leaving the case, and that's why they were shutting down because the family who was suing me would have to find a new lawyer. Ultimately, the same lawyer refiled, and it all started again. The anxiety, the panic, the shame, the guilt. By this time, I was well past practicing medicine. I was doing my podcast. I was living a good life writing my book. And don't let me even get you started on what I thought would happen. I thought they were going to take my book and use information from the book against me in court. 
I also failed to mention that in 2017, my attorney, who I hired to defend me in this process, the first thing she said is, you need to stop blogging, you need to stop podcasting, you need to stop putting anything out on social media. Can you imagine? I now live my life as a creator. This is the thing that I was waking up for every day. She was saying I couldn't do it. And luckily, I didn't listen. I decided that the consequences were going to be what the consequences were. I was writing a financial blog. I was getting ready to start my financial podcast. And I wasn't going to let this thing shape my life. Eventually, after the suit was refiled, I was depositioned. And for three hours, I had this plaintiff's attorney rip through 25 of my notes over a year's period of time, looking for every little thing that that plaintiff attorney thought I did wrong, even if it was something that no doctor in the world would do. He knew that in deposition, if he could frame it as an error, even if it wasn't an error, people on a jury, lay people, people who don't understand medicine would think that I had done something wrong. When we got done with the deposition, my attorney called me the next day. He said, you know what? Don't worry. And I said, why? He said, well, you know, this other attorney has pretty much told me that he never really planned to sue you in the end. He was just using you as leverage. He wanted you to testify so he could use that information against the nursing home because the truth of the matter is the nursing home is the real target. He was never after you in the first place. Can you imagine? Can you imagine how I felt after years of fear and shame and feeling bad and worrying about my own finances as well as my own emotions surrounding the situation after leaving my practice and seeing one of my favorite patients die, maybe because I wasn't there to help them. I was just leverage. I was just leverage. Two weeks ago, my attorney wrote me. Remember, this started in 2017. It's now 2022. Two weeks ago, my attorney wrote me and said, congratulations, you've been dropped from the case. The case is closed. The nursing home settled. They can never refile this again. Hmm. I was speechless. I was excited. I was relieved. And the truth was, I was also a little bit angry. You see, I know this lawyer, this plaintiff's attorney, is sitting somewhere patting himself on the back, feeling like he is spoken for those who don't have voices. He is speaking for this gentleman who died of this infection. He feels the nursing home or the doctor or someone else did something wrong. He is standing up and protecting the people. On the other hand, I also wonder if he understands the consequences of his actions. If he knows about my patient who died, maybe because I wasn't there. If he recognizes how many doctors are no longer there. Because the system is too painful and difficult. How many doctors have bowed out, whether it be medical malpractice, electronic medical systems, governmental intrusion on our practice, COVID, where doctors felt helpless and felt harangued by society? How many doctors have left? How many patients have suffered? How many bad things have happened Because this guy wanted to use me as leverage. Leverage. We are suffering a healthcare crisis. Our medical systems aren't working for us. Doctors and patients are no longer communicating. And more important, there are too many hands in the cookie jar. There are electronic medical records vendors. There are pharmaceutical companies. There are insurance companies. There's the government and politicians who are trying to make a point. 
They have taken the major shareholders in the system. Who are those shareholders? It's you and I. It's the people who give care, the doctors, nurses, social workers, physical therapists, chaplains. It's the caregivers. And then it's those who are receiving care, the patients. We are the major shareholders. And you know what we are to all these third parties? We are a mechanism to make money. We are a way for a politician to make a name for themselves. We are, you guessed it, leverage. If we want things to get better, the answer is not to become financially independent so that we can get out of the system. As healthcare givers, the answer is not to become financially independent so we can quit our jobs. As patients, The answer is not to become financially independent so we can pay for better care elsewhere. We can get a concierge doctor or we can leave the country and practice medical arbitrage. The answer is that we as the main shareholders, we as the constituents, us healthcare givers and you patients need to come together and prove to all of these other parties that we are strong that we are powerful, and that we are capable, and most importantly of all, we are not and will never again be leverage. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.